funny, in the ministry as a pastor, I have sometimes used what we're going to be talking about this morning as a joke. And let me tell you what I mean. Someone's like, hey, uh, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I'll be like, oh, you know, I thought I'd talk about the Levitical laws and the Old Testament sacrificial system. Not a joke like a ha-ha joke, but just tongue-in-cheek like, hey, what are you going to talk about, you know? Like, if you could possibly think about the most difficult, potentially confusing, and arbitrary, um, you know, nonsensical, at sometimes topic, you would think about the book of Leviticus and the whole sacrificial system and all this Old Testament stuff, right? Man, it's a whole lot easier to say, hey, you know what, today we're going to talk about the love of God, or how to have peace in your life, or how Jesus forgave people, you know, all these topics that are amazing and great and relevant, but man, for many of us in ministry, and even in Christianity, when you start talking about the Levitical system, and all the laws and regulations in the Old Testament, we tend to kind of shy away from that, right? And you'll notice when you've seen debates or if you've read on the internet people debating, you know, atheists and believers and everything and, and just a lot of the hot topics that you see in our culture. What is the first thing that, that God-haters bring up? All right, well, if God's so loving and so full of grace, what about this or where he commanded this or what about these crazy laws? Many of them in the book of Leviticus. And for some of us, we're just kind of scared to enter into that conversation. We don't understand it. We don't get it. It's confusing. And because of that, we'd just much rather park uh, after the cross and in what Jesus taught in the New Testament, right? Well, this morning, we're going to attempt to tie together this thread series with going into a study of this sacrificial system and see how it points ultimately to Jesus, so I don't know what enters into your mind when we talk about the word holy. Today we're going to be talking about how the sacrificial system um, points to God's holiness. And I don't know what images that conjures up for you. For me, growing up in New Jersey, my dad was a pastor. We had an old, gothic, 150-year-old church with big stained glass windows. Kind of the old school, uh, box-shaped type of church. Uh, that had the pews going on, and you walk in, and like immediately you just, in my mind, I think the word holy associated with that church, right? Uh, and on the stage, you had a giant wooden pulpit that's got a bunch of, you know, just fancy woodwork on it, and then in the back, you have two giant thrones. Anybody growing up going to a throne church? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, they were ornate, and there's woodwork on them, and they're huge, and they probably weighed, you know, 100 pounds or more each. I mean, they were something to look at. It was regal. And when I was in high school, I got the chance to actually participate a little bit more. My dad had me reading scripture and even got a chance to preach on occasion. My total message was about six minutes long. All right, let's close in prayer. Um, but I got to sit on the throne. That was part of like the dignity. You come out from the side and I'm sitting on the, uh, you know, the throne there and it's looking over at my dad and I'm like, I feel somehow holier now, right? 
And so from growing up in that kind of setting, maybe when you think about holiness and you think about a sanctuary in that type of setting, you know, our, our terminology can sometimes determine our theology, right? So when you think about that and then when you think about God and we hear that God is holy, what does that cause you to think? I know for me, especially when I was younger growing up, it's kind of like, well, God really digs the organ, number one, you know? And, and God doesn't like a lot of loud noises. He doesn't like people running. All right? And, and like that's all part of my makeup in, in that kind of church setting. And since I've gotten older and realized more and more that holiness is, is way different than that, right? But a simple definition for us this morning is holiness simply means to be set apart for a special use. To be set apart for a special use. And as I was thinking this through, and uh, the illustration came to my mind of when I was in middle school. Um, you know, I was a very big, again, growing up in New Jersey, very big New York sports fan, very big Yankees fan, and uh, New York Yankees fan. And when I was uh, in middle school, I went to a game and I actually got a foul ball. One of the players, I was right there on the third baseline, put it right in, my, right in my mitt, and that was the greatest treasure that I had. I brought home, I immediately, you know, took very good care of it, got one of those little plastic, you know, little ball things to stick it in so it didn't get tarnished or anything, set it right there on my shelf to remind me of my love and this token, this uh, experience at Yankee Stadium. And, and, and so one day later on in middle school, I was coming home from school and I passed by uh, in my yard and my sister and her friend were having a catch. I didn't think twice about it, you know, maybe pulled her hair as I went by or something. I was young. Um, but I go upstairs, put my book bag down, sit down on my bed, and just look up at my shelf, and, huh, that thing was empty. My trophy case was empty, and so I make a beeline all the way down the stairs, go outside, sure enough, grab the baseball, look at it, it says Major League uh, Baseball, you know, official ball, Major League, that was the ball, now it's got dirt on it, it's got grass stains on it, so I kicked my sister, <laughs> truth be told, go inside immediately, and I'm scrubbing it, and I'm trying to get it back to that pristine condition that it was in, Why? Because to me, that item was set aside in significance as something very special to me. There was a, a dozen other baseballs that my sister could have used, and they're all the same. It's not like this one was of any more intrinsic value by itself outside of the fact that it was used in a Major League Baseball game. And so that changed it for me. And if you take that simple illustration and multiply it by about 10,000, we get some of the idea of what holiness means for us as a, as a people, as believers, as Christians, if you're a believer here this morning. We're really no physically different than anybody else, but yet because of the incredible price that Jesus paid, he set us aside for a special use. We're no longer ordinary like everybody else. And we're going to dive into that here a little bit more um, this morning by way of holiness. Um, key thought to start us out, as we're talking about this thread series and going all throughout the Old Testament, uh, think about this and be reminded of this, that God always made a way for relationship with him. 
Way back in Genesis, he was in the garden. He was walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. And then even when they sinned, even when they went outside of that plan, even when they were banished from the garden, that immediate fellowship with God, there was still a way. And for Noah and all throughout the patriarchs, God had a system set up where they could sacrifice and they could confess their sins and be brought back to him. He always made a way. And here in the story, we enter in after Moses was there uh, out of Egypt in the wilderness now. Now we're going to make it a little bit more official. And now God is going to verbalize and we are going to get a written code of how to get back into relationship with God. He always made a way back. It's important for us to recognize. Three main points that I have for you this morning. Um, from, largely from the Old Testament. We're going to be summarizing a lot of it. I do want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. The other passages that we're going to read are going to be up on the screen here. But three main concepts, if you're taking notes, you can follow along with the slides as we, as we dive into this. But the first one is this. The law confirms our brokenness. The law confirms our brokenness. I've got Exodus chapter 20 written down there. That's one of the accounts of the Ten Commandments. So whereas before, God would speak through Moses and speak through Jacob and speak through some of the other patriarchs, now God is setting in stone what his law is, literally, pun intended. Right there he is at the top of Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments, comes down, shares them with the people. And from the beginning, even in the New Testament, you see not a whole lot's changed. When you think about our responsibilities before God, it's twofold. Right? What is the greatest command when they ask Jesus? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, don't forget the second part, to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a vertical aspect to our responsibility, and there's a horizontal aspect to our responsibility, and nothing's changed. The Ten Commandments, you see that same pattern, right? The first four of them are meant for our relationship towards God, and the last six of them have to do with our relationship largely with each other. So you see that nothing's changed in that respect. But here, um, in, in the book of Leviticus, God lays out for us, and in the second half of the book of Exodus, God lays out for us, these are my plans for you to know how to get back in a relationship with me. Now I need to tell you that some of these are unbelievably tedious and confusing some of the rules and the regulations we look at now, and it's almost laughable what they had to go through, but remember, we're talking about something 3,500 years ago, right? Totally different culture, but think about some of these um, illustrations of these are actual laws for God's people, nation Israel, they had to obey, you ready? Number one, you can't mix any fibers of clothing. Okay, I want you to all, if you're sitting next to your husband or wife, what is this made of? What is this made of? It's doubtful to me that anybody here has got anything 100% one fabric on them right now. Right? Of course, they're all a blend of different fabrics and clothes. What's the big deal about that? Well, it was forbidden for those people. Okay? Uh, how about this? There's no tattoos or piercings allowed. Anybody got some artwork uh, on them right now? You got some tattoos? 
Man, first service, we were filled with them. That's the rebel service, apparently. Right? But we know there's nothing wrong with that nowadays, right? But back then, the nation of Israel, you cannot tattoo your body. I've been trying to convince my wife to uh, let me get some tattoos. Nothing wrong with that. We'll see if that happens here sometime. But man, there, yeah, I mean, all right. And piercings, I mean, you know, we know that there's a lot of people that have that and culturally things change and we understand all that. For them, uh-uh. No piercing, no tattoos. Sorry, butterflies, not gonna happen. Giant winged eagles on your back, not gonna happen. Nothing. They also have strict regulations about how long you have to keep your beard and how you have to, you know, trim the edges of your beard and certain things that you can couldn't do. All this kind of stuff, things that they had to wear. The men had to wear blue tassels coming down from their garments. And even today, the nation of Israel, the flag, the blue is still representative of that. And all of these things were designed and given by God for this people to obey. Another strict regulation that they had, um, you're not allowed to eat any shrimp or lobster or any shellfish. Anybody want to sign up for that denomination? No way, man. I love my seafood, right? Nope, can't do it. You can eat some bugs, not other bugs. Ones that have, you know, a leg that's got a little dangling uh, two uh, pieces to it. That one you can eat. The other ones you can't. And it goes on and on and on talking about chewing the cud and the hooves that are split versus not split. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Fifty chapters worth. And you talk about God and what does that teach us about God? Well, number one, God knows what he wants. You read through all these regulations and you read the kind of colors that they want and the measurement uh, of what the tabernacle should be and everything else. It's so unbelievably specific. But the point is that in this law that was given, it is proof that we are a broken people and that there's no way we could possibly attain to that standard of perfection. Number two, when we talk about the actual tabernacle, we need to recognize that the tabernacle reveals his holiness. Whereas the commandments, you know, shows us that we're broken and that we fall short. The whole idea of the tabernacle reveals so much to us about God's holiness. A couple of quick things about it. Number one, again, this is with Moses in the wilderness And so God told him, I want you to build me a tabernacle where I am going to dwell. We need to recognize that it was meant to be portable. So God's first church that he was in, it was a portable church. Amen to that? Can I get an amen, Northwest Community Church? So maybe they had the teams early in the morning to do the setup and do the teardown of the tabernacle and setting up, you know? It had to be able to be moved because they were constantly on the move. That's a check mark for Northwest Community Church. Who's more like God's and what he wanted in the Old Testament? We are. Hopefully not for long and forever. But it's true. 
Uh, you see a lot of other things about that. When, when Moses uh, got the command from God that he wanted to build a place, a, a place where he would dwell physically, concrete, where he would be, he, he took a free will offering from all the people and said, we need you to bring all your gold earrings, all your purple linens, all your goat hair, all this other specific stuff that people brought in. At that time, they were valuable. They were amazing. They were beautiful. And people brought them in. And God was careful to say, I only want you to bring it if you come with a whole and sincere heart. And that by itself is a teaching point for us this morning, right? Whatever offerings we bring, God's saying, yep, we want it to be gold. We want it to be beautiful. We want it to be ornate. Uh, You know, God deserves that. But if you're going to come and present your offering with a heart that's not completely pure, I don't want it. Furthermore, we see that, um, that there was um, a lot of ritual involved. And I want to talk to you briefly here about the sacrifices, the five different sacrifices that we see in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle wasn't huge. It was probably about the size of this room, maybe even a little bit bigger, but not that big for the whole entire nation of Israel, right? But as people would come for these different sacrifices, they would enter in uh, the, the outer gates into the courts and, uh, and they had to participate in the sacrifice. A couple quick things I want to point out to you. Maybe you've recognized some of these. You've seen references to some of these. Just want to explain what they were really quickly. It really is interesting. Number one, the burnt offering. Uh, and by the way, the first three, voluntary. Somebody wanted to do something for God. They wanted to come. They wanted to ask forgiveness. They wanted to offer something up. They were voluntary. Second two, God commanded. But the first one's a burnt offering, which says, I'm bringing this to you, and and, and may the fire consume it, because this is what I'm offering to you. I I give you my everything. I surrender everything. The second one, called the meal offering, or the grain offering, was one where people would bring, uh, you know, this was the vegetarian version Right? People would bring grain and everything, and this was for the priests to eat freely of. The third one is perhaps my favorite. Uh, this is called the, uh, the peace offering. And the reason it's my favorite is because they would come with their meat, uh, with their lamb, with their oxen, with their beef, with whatever, um, bowel, chicken, birds, whatever. They would come with it all, and this was to represent the peace between people. So they would roast all of these animals on the altar and they would all partake of the meat together. And they would do this thing called a wave offering where they would take a piece of meat and they would just kind of wave it like this in the air. And that represented before God, I'm just waving this and presenting this before you. And I'm presenting this to these, my friends, people, part of my community. And we're going to celebrate and we're going to partake of this together. So next time you have a barbecue at your house, I want to hear stories about that platter of hamburgers and, and, and meat being waved like this. A wave offering, representing the love for people for each other. There was also a drink offering that was tied in with this one, right? You've heard of a pour out. Give this guy a little pour out. We miss him. That's where it started. Pouring out wine as a sacrifice to God. Crazy. But these last two are the ones that are a little bit more serious. 
the sin offering had to do with unintentional sins that I've committed against God. And I had to come every so often and bring an animal for that. And the guilt offering. This had to do with unintentional sins that I did against somebody else in the community. And I had to bring an offering for that. And man, I tell you what, sometimes you look at all these and you're like, wow, why so much bloodshed? Why so much killing? We look at all this and like, well, that is really cruel. And maybe you're not even a believer here this morning and you're coming in and you're like, what kind of crazy cult have I walked into where they're talking about sacrificing all these animals and sprinkling blood on the altar and what is all this? Those are legitimate questions. But a few things I want to highlight for you about these. Number one, you need to recognize that just about all of these offerings did not go to waste. All the priests and their families and even the community, for some of them, the people of Israel, would eat and partake of what was sacrificed. So it wasn't just a senseless killing of an animal. It had significance but it also had a very practical use as well. This is how they got their food. So when you think about it that way, it's really no different than Smithfield Barbecue or City Barbecue or Chick-fil-A for that matter, right? I mean, a little less messy, you know, we have nowadays than what it was then, but that's exactly what happened. This was their source of food and their source of animal skins, and they used a lot of the pieces of, uh, of the sacrifices for that sort of thing. But there is an element to it that says, yeah, but there is some seriousness to it as well. We know in any culture, ours included, whatever we have for lunch, that animal had to be killed so that we could eat. At this time, it was, yep, that animal has to be killed. But God's saying, you know what the important part of it is? That animal's blood has to be shed because for the ancients, blood represented life. And for us, in our culture, it's kind of like blood represents death and we're grossed out by it and oh my goodness. But back then, blood represented life. And God was setting up a system for his people that said, you know what, when you go against my laws, when you sin against me, part of your life is taken away. The wages of sin is death, Right? And God, by his mercy, is saying, well, I know we have to kill all these animals anyway. This is part of how we eat. But I want you to see the significance that says, because you have sinned, something else has to die. An animal has to experience suffering at some level. And that life has to be taken away so that your life can be renewed. Man, when you look at it from the overall perspective, maybe that makes a little bit more sense as it pertains to all the different offerings. Now I want to walk you through what the tabernacle actually looked like. Um, and I've got some props here to help me out with that. As you walked into the outer court, the first thing that you see is the brazen altar. And that was the big altar where all of these sacrifices took place. The second thing that you would have to pass by would be the brass laver or the basin for washing. And this is where the priests ceremonially would wash their hands and would wash their feet, recognizing that you're about ready to enter into a very holy presence of a very holy God. 
So once you entered into the holy place that was a giant curtain and you went inside of that from the outer court, there was a table and it was called the table of showbread. This is sourdough. This is not showbread. This is not unleavened bread. But I wanted to bring this here as just a visual for us. There was 12 loaves of this bread representing the 12 nations of Israel, the 12 tribes. And the bread uh, was also called the bread of presence because now you are getting closer and closer to the presence of God. The next element was the golden lampstand and on that was um, a bunch of candles that were representative of illumination and of God's presence among his people. As you think about the Old Testament and you think about um, how God manifests himself so often to the people of Israel, this is the motif that he used, right? Exodus chapter 33, Moses and the giant, giant pillar of fire that went by when the glory of God passed by. Well, inside this holy place, the illumination was the candlelight. And the very last thing before the curtain that goes into the Holy of Holies was called the altar of incense. And again, all of these things were things that were commanded by God. And the priests would light the incense and it would never go out. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to fill that place with a pleasing aroma that would remind them of the presence of God. So this is a little bit of a visual explanation of what happened there in the temple. And the most important piece, all these other ones were leading up to once you're in the holy place. And then there's one more curtain, one more veil, and inside of there is called the Holy of Holies. And you've heard of that before. And once a year, only the high priest who had gone through all the rituals and who had cleansed himself and gotten himself straight before God, only the priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And there stood the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. And it's there that the priest would pray for forgiveness for all the sins of the nation Israel and he would sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat and ask and beg and plead for God's forgiveness for them as a people. It's pretty incredible to think about all of this system in everything that they had to go through. But now that we are here on this side of the cross, we want to bring something to your attention. And that's that all of these different things, all these processes, all these rules ultimately ended up falling short, right? Look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Here we had this law, this elaborate system. Here's what it says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Can you imagine how frustrated you would be if you were somebody who was part of the nation of Israel? In this setting... 
It's like once a week or several times a week or certainly once a year. This was, this was the format. This was what was going on. And now all of a sudden you realize, oh, by the way, all those laws, they could never really make you clean. It's always temporary. You always have to come back. So wait a minute, you're saying abstaining from lobster that I love and having to just wear onesies made of wool only and you know, like all those other uh, regulations, all those don't really gain me anything? No, they don't. They gain you a temporary satisfaction, but it's never something That's going to be ongoing. Keep on reading in verse 2. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, and when he that is Jesus said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings... Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first system in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified, which means made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. All right, so did he catch all that? So all these other things that we're doing, all this rote rigor and all of this bloodshed and all of this sacrifice, it's all pointing forward to the man Jesus Christ. And so what are we talking about here? Well, think about the tabernacle. You've got the brazen altar with the blood sacrifice. Jesus was our all-consuming sacrifice, Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Then you've got this whole idea of a washing and a cleansing in, in, in some way to, to make yourself holy, right? With the, with, the, um, with the laver. Well, it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just through Jesus to forgive us of sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 also mentions that. The cleansing of God. You see it pictured right here. And then you've got the showbread. Jesus in John chapter 6 clarifies all that, right? I am the bread of life. Bread representing God's provision and nourishment and the basic elements of life. And here Jesus is saying, that's what I am. Jesus was from a city called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. That's the name of the town he was from. He came to fulfill all of the prophecies and all of the elements that you see in the tabernacle. What about the lampstand? Well, Jesus, of course, said, I am the light of the world. In him there was no darkness. He came to be the life and the light of all men. Over and over and over, you see Jesus referencing that to bring light to everybody. And the altar of incense, this pleasing aroma 
that proceeds towards God, that's illustrated in the idea of prayer and sacrifice and praises. In the book of the Psalms, it, in uh, chapter uh, 141, verse 1, it says, let my praises rise like incense. First Thessalonians talks about, may we pray without ceasing. That's why they had incense in there going all the time, 24-7, constantly. May we be worshiping and praising and bringing our prayers before a holy God. I love the passage that you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that talks about we as believers now can be a fragrant offering to others. Not the smell of death, not the smell of destruction, but rather the smell of life. In a pleasing aroma, we're given that ability now through Christ. And finally, we've got the veil that separated God from just about everyone. I want you to remember when Jesus was crucified, the earthquake and the thunder and all the elements of darkness. And it says, the veil was torn in two. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because of the holiness of God and how serious they took all this. Imagine if you were just a normal Jewish person and all of a sudden this thing that had been left secret from you and everybody else except for one person once a year was ripped and now all of a sudden access into the presence of God was wide open for any of them to see. The person of Jesus transformed us into his likeness. So the final point that we want to talk about here as we get ready to bring things down a little bit to an application into a close is this. Jesus offered the opportunity for us to become holy. I think for many of us, we get frustrated, man. I'm, I just keep on falling. I just fall short over and over, and I'm, I'm just worthless, and I'm just a sinner. And you kind of get this in your mind that, you know, you're, you're just so much less than God and so unworthy. And of course, to an extent, all that's true. But you know what? That's not what God says about you. I'm here to bring you a message of hope here this morning and a different perspective. Check out this verse, First uh, Peter chapter 2. Um, says this, but you, that is everyone who is a believer in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in other words, what God is saying to us this morning is other people in recognizing God's holiness, taking all these steps to try and get there, to try and get forgiven. Man, if you've got a relationship with Jesus Christ, God is saying, you are already holy. That's how he views us. You're a holy nation, a people belonging to God already, positionally. And so what does that mean for us? You've heard of John 3.16? I got another one to add for you. How about Philippians 3.16? Here's what this says. Paul says, now let us already live up to what we've already attained. Let us just live up to this. We are holy people. Let's start acting like it. 
So it's not taking all these steps over here to try and get there. God is saying positionally, you're already holy. You're already there. It's just your choice whether or not to act that way. And finally, the writer of Hebrews brings us home. Chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to this confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we will receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. Are we bold and confident believers here this morning? I see a little bit of a dichotomy in my own life and maybe in the life of many of you as well. On the one hand, it just feels so wrong to talk about being bold and and being confident before God, right? Because we should be humble. We should be afraid when we recognize his holiness. Yet at the same time, this is what God says. Because of Jesus being our great high priest and the curtain torn in two, you are now free to enter into the presence of God. And truly, when we talk about the idea of temple, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about, do you not know that your body is a temple of God? Glorify God then with your body. So man, when you think about all the regulations and all the road stuff and all the detail and everything, how much more then should we be so aware of what's going on with our life and what comes out of our mouth and what we allow into our eyesight and our vision and what we take in and what we think and what we feel and how we act, knowing that our bodies now are the temple and the residence of the God of the universe. So I don't know where that lands on you this morning. I know we've covered a lot, but I just want to close with a couple of action steps for you, a couple of thoughts that say, what are we going to do with this? Number one, I just want to ask you, do you realize what your sin costs? When we think about that the wages of sin is death and we think about all the suffering and death that had to go on with it, do we take that seriously anymore? Do we realize the damages? Do we realize the cost? My question for you is, do you recognize that you're set apart for a special use in holiness? I don't know what that looks like for you. You don't know what that looks like for me. But we know according to scripture that God has opened the way. God's made us holy. He's set us apart for something great and amazing for special use. And are we willing to walk in that this morning. I don't want to be named among the ordinary people. I don't want to be used for ordinary use. God has sanctified me and set me apart. I want to be used for something amazing. We're going to close with two songs here this morning. And the first one that we're going to sing is called Before the Throne of God Above. I have this one in this perfect plea The great high priest whose name is love. He's the one, Jesus, that went before 
God the Father for us and interceded and created a way that we can have access. So let's stand up together. I'm just going to close this in prayer. And then we're going to sing together. And Jesus, we just thank you this morning that of your own will and your own desire, wanting to please your Father, you chose to come down to the earth for us and to sacrifice your blood to pay the price for all of our sins. And God, this morning we confess and I confess that we are a people so often that feel unholy and even that act in a way that's unholy. But God, I just pray and I ask that you would help us to recognize that you say that's not who we are. That we've been called to something greater. And you've given us the strength to make those right decisions and to declare the excellencies of you that gave us new life. So Lord, I pray even this morning that you would help us to be aware of that and that you would help us to do that. Father, we desire to sing to you now, to declare who you are and the one plea that we have as we come before your throne. So be pleased with our offering of worship, we pray in your son's name.